Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Thursday, October the 26th, 2023. With all the catastrophic, tragic mayhem in Gaza, uh, it's easy to forget that there is another war still going on. There are war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which is now on day 610, astonishingly and tragically as well. Um, the papers, whether it's the Western media or even Al Jazeera, are still covering the war, key events. Uh, every day something new happens. Today, one of the headlines was that Slovakia has announced the end of military aid to Ukraine, I think, with Hungary. So that may have some geopolitical or geostrategic significance. Meanwhile, the war goes on. According to Zelensky, uh, the Russians likely targeted a nuclear plant in Ukraine. So it's all horribly tragic. One person who's been watching this war very close up is my guest today, Nora Krug. She's um, a very distinguished artist, illustrator, author, based in New York City, originally from Germany. She's At the beginning of the war, she started a series in the Los Angeles Times called Diaries of War, featuring a, a Ukrainian and, and Russian uh, narrative. She created two figures, K and D, an artist in Russia and a, a journalist in Ukraine. The book has now uh, come out. Oh, the, the, the art, the Diaries of War has been put into a book, which is out. I think it's out this week or next. Um, and Nora is joining us from New York City. She teaches, uh, she's a professor at the Parsons School of Design. Congratulations, Nora, on the book, although I don't suppose we have much else to be particularly happy about these days, do we, especially when it comes to this war? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, as you say, the war is going on and we hear less and less about it because it's been overshadowed by other very tragic and important events. Um, and I think um, what I'm trying to do with this book is capture something that can maybe remain with us um, whilst media are focusing on a, on a different area um, and try to get us uh, understand uh, what it feels like to experience this war firsthand. So you started this Diaries of War in the LA Times. Uh, how, how, when did you begin and how did the war itself trigger this? So I'm German, as you mentioned, but I've been living in the US for 20 years. But as a European watching the war unfold from abroad, I felt a strong urge to, to do something as a human being, as an artist, as a writer. Um, I also was aware from the beginning that it's a war that's not just affecting Ukraine, but the entirety of Europe. So I felt very personally affected and involved. Um, and I decided to use my medium to... Um, to communicate uh, aspects of the war that I found were lacking a little bit in the media news coverage. So um, I contacted two people uh, who I had uh, only spoken to once before and never met in, in person. One is a Russian-born Ukrainian journalist based in Kiev. The other one is a Russian artist based in St. Petersburg. I checked in with them to see how they were feeling, uh, what they were experiencing during the first week or actually on the first day of the invasion. 
Um, and their responses were so obviously raw that I felt like this needs to be documented. How do two individuals from two opposite sides of the border experience this firsthand? And can we make a commitment to following their experiences uh, over the course of an entire year rather than just doing one interview for you know the news stream and then and then basically losing track of them? So I asked them if they'd be open to being interviewed on a weekly basis by me. Um, I would compile their uh, responses into a fluent text and then illustrate their experiences every week and um, feature them in the LA Times and by doing that raise awareness and funds for Ukraine specifically um, to support the victims in Ukraine of that war. So uh, I'm assuming uh, Kay, obviously, uh, the journalist in Ukraine is not a great fan of Vladimir Putin. What about D, the artist in, in, in Russia? Is D a, a critic, a sympathetic to the war? What was D's original um, response to the invasion? Yeah, uh, he's very critical of Putin, which is also why he has remained anonymous. Um, he voices his criticism very clearly, but he also admits to the fact that he's not an activist. So he's not going out into the streets to demonstrate. Um, and, and this is what I think makes his narrative so interesting because it really confronts the reader with um, our own feelings of engagement or the lack thereof. You know, what are we doing? Are we doing enough to confront our countries? Um, political engagement or the atrocities committed by our, our country. So uh, his uh, narrative is much more ambivalent. He is against Putin, but he doesn't actively resist the regime, uh, while the contrasting perspective of Kay, who lives in Ukraine, has a Ukrainian passport and a Ukrainian family, reports from the, uh, from the war zone and risks her life for Ukrainian freedom, um, is obviously affected in a very, very different way, very immediately, very physically. Her friends are being kidnapped or killed. Uh, she's afraid of, of being bombed. She has now evacuated her, her family um, to, uh, to Copenhagen, um, but she returns to the front line regularly to report. Uh, Nora, you're also the author of a couple of other critically acclaimed books. You did the illustrations uh, for uh, a graphic version of Tim Schneider's contemporary classic on tyranny. You also wrote a very, personally, I think, a very influential book, uh, Belonging, on your uh, return to Germany and your personal reckoning with history and home. How challenging was this project for you, both as an artist and intellectually? Yes, Belonging, uh, sorry, do you mean Belonging or do you mean the current project? Uh, the current project, we can talk okay. about Belong. Belonging was a, a previous book. Yeah. Um, well, I think each of the three books you described take a very different approach, but they're all basically about war. They all deal with the aspect of war. And I think the reason for that is that I am German and I grew up, uh, you know, in the aftermath kind of, of of the Nazis' atrocities. And I think a lot of Germans of my generation's generation define themselves still very much um, in this context of you know what we did as a country and how we can confront that terrible past. Um, so war has been a central theme of my work for the past 16 years. And uh, the current book, however, is the first time that I was documenting uh, a war as it was unfolding. So not a war that has passed, but a war that is happening 
And um, so I was very much in the moment. Uh, there was always the concern that I couldn't reach the two protagonists. You know, I needed to supply material to the LA Times every week. I interviewed my protagonists every weekend, shaped their interviews into text uh, by Monday, passed it by the editor of the LA Times, have to, had to start sketching on Tuesday, deliver the final art on Thursday, and then the following weekend, I had to start with the next round of interviews. So I had one day in between to do all the other stuff that one needs to do. That's a lot time. of work on a day. I mean, given that you have a full-time job anyway, a person's, that's a lot of work. Yes, it was a very intense year, but, you know, less so for me than for my two protagonists. And I felt really committed to them and to this project. But I think the challenge was, you know, I didn't know would uh, Kay sometimes not be able to get back to me while reporting from the front line? Would she be injured? Uh, would D, the Russian guy, have enough interesting material to deliver because his struggle is much more internal? And how do you supply a story to a newspaper over the course of a whole year? You know, that's interesting enough for a readership to follow. So I had to think very hard about the questions I was asking. I also did not only ask them what they experienced during the previous week, but I also uh, aimed uh, for some more, you know, deeper philosophical existential questions. So I also asked them how the war affected their minds and their body, how it affected their relationship to uh, their children, to their families, to their sense of national identity to words like guilt and reparation and forgiveness. Um, so it became both uh, an inv investigation of their day-to-day -day experiences and of the human cost of war, you know, in a more philosophical sense. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was the first time I, I was working on a, on a real-time event. Did you get a, a long-term commitment from them or was it a week-to-week -week thing? I mean, did you say to them, after a few weeks, I think this series is going to run for a while in the time. So uh, I need a degree of commitment because if one of them had said, well, I can't do this anymore after a few weeks, it might have been a little embarrassing for you. Um, well, I didn't get uh, what we did. I mean, I did this with the LA Times too. The LA Times didn't commit to a whole year. They basically said, let's document this and see how it goes. And we can decide later on what happens. And so um, there was a certain amount of risk involved for the Times as well. Yeah. Uh, and this is what I had communicated to the two protagonists. I just said, okay, the, the Times wants to publish this. Let's give it a try. And, you know, I didn't know these two, two people very well. And it was so much based on mutual trust. And um, I was and remain kind of shocked that they managed to get back to me in time for the entirety of the year, every single week, no matter what happened in their lives. You know, when they had COVID, when I had COVID, when uh, they, we celebrated Christmas all at the same time. Um, and so uh, after three months of publishing this, the LA Times said, okay, this has been great. Let's shift the focus uh, a little bit more on those existential questions for the next weeks and see how that goes. And then they ended up doing it for a year. And um, yeah, it was, it was really lucky that it worked out. Although I'm guessing that nobody knew for sure that this war, I mean, certainly in the early stages that would go on for a year, the LA Times should be, it's always easy to bash online newspapers, big media, blah, blah, but we should commend the LA Times for this, shouldn't we? Yeah, definitely. It's a huge commitment. The editor I, who encouraged me to do this project, Terry Tang, is, is really wonderful. 
And um, it's so important because we don't, as I mentioned earlier, we don't often hear the personal stories of war. You know, we might hear one interview with an individual, but then we lose track of the person. We don't know whatever happened to them, but we don't commit to, to, to individuals over the course of a longer time span. And one thing that I had discussed with Terry Tang, uh, the editor at the LA Times, uh, initially was that if the war um, ended, that we would continue the interviews because this is another thing that, you know, as soon as the war ends, the media leaves, but uh, everything has been destroyed. There are so many scars. How do people live with the aftermath of a war? We need to look at this. It's as important as what's happening during the war and we often don't pay enough attention. So I think we could have uh, continued the project in many ways, but sadly the war has continued. We are speaking with Nora Kruger, uh, an artist, a graphic artist and writer, the author of uh, a new book, Diaries of War, which came out of a series she ran in the Los Angeles Times. Uh, Nora, when did you decide to turn this into a book? Um, I think after the first six months of documenting these two people's lives, I had the idea of making this a book because I think it's important to have a document of what happened. So I didn't look at this project only as a news story, uh, but I think it's something that we should actually capture for later on as well. We need to learn from war. We need to learn what drives people um, to support, you know, tyrannical regimes and what effect that has on, on individuals. And I, I see this book as a, as a snapshot of this period, but one period that we should try to understand even once the war has ended. And um, so I, I saw a certain value in turning it into a book, something that remains. Um, you know, newspapers are always thrown away, so it, it, it doesn't remain. Um, and so I asked uh, K and D whether they'd be interested in, uh, in the idea of doing a book. And they immediately, again, immediately agreed because they share this uh, feeling that it's a very important thing to document and to, uh, to make ac accessible to readers. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's that's when my agents uh, started pitching it to publishers. Sadly, Nora, um, this intellectually, there's a very close lineage between Schneider's on tyranny and this new book. I remember reading Schneider um, when it came out, and I've, I've had him on the show. I always thought maybe his take on Putin was a little exaggerated, but I think if anyone's been proved right by the Ukraine war, it's Tim Schneider. Yes, when I started illustrating on tyranny, um, so many things that he had written about years before when the original unillustrated edition had come out uh, came true. You know, I mean, this was during the, the final Trump year, I believe, when I illustrated the book. And Timothy Snyder wrote the initial book uh, right at the start of um, Trump's presidency. So um, whatever he wrote about, you know, insurgents um, and, and all these dangerous tendencies, not only in Russia, but also uh, here in the United States, um, came true. And it was a strange feeling to illustrate it as it was happening. It felt like I was creating a, a, yet another visual diary of the time that we're living in. Nora, we've done a number of shows on the war in Ukraine, as you don't need me to tell you that it's a very controversial war. Not everyone is certainly as critical of Putin as somebody like Tim Schneider. We've, in fact, had people on the show who argue that the West shouldn't be involved and that there is a Russian case to be made for the invasion or at least making sense of the war. 
Um, do you include that in the book or is your book and the, the, the narrative in the book, is it, is it pretty, uh, pretty unambiguous that this is essentially a, a colonial invasion of one strong country into another country? Yeah, I mean, there are two components. One is, you know, I didn't write the book. The book is a collection of interviews, so it's not Yeah, my... but you chose the interviews and you chose what questions yeah. to. So um, I contextualize the book by, you know, I wrote an introduction and I'm making it very, very clear in the introduction what my political position is. And it is that Russia aggressively launched an unprovoked full-scale invasion uh, on Ukraine uh, and is committing atro atrocities, is playing into this old narrative that it wants us to believe, um, and it's it's committing war crimes very clearly. I mean, that to me, there's just no question about that, and I, I do feel that the West needs to be involved, uh, especially as a German, uh, you know, with our history, a Nazi history in, in, in Ukraine. Um, I, I just feel so much that we need to support U Ukraine militarily, ideologically, financially. So um, this is my position. But um, this, is all, this is a project of visual journalism. And as a journalist in this instance, it was my task to document two voices um, and to document what they were thinking and feeling without um, you know, applying my own perspective. As I mentioned earlier, D, the Russian protagonist, is strongly against Putin. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm actually glad that um, I found somebody who is anti-Putin, because had I, had I chosen a protagonist who was in favor of Putin, I think it would have yet again played in, into the Russian propaganda narrative. And I feel like we need to question these narratives that that uh, Russia is, is is dishing up. You know, we need to uh, look at what's really going on. And then and that is that there's a huge sense of passivity in the country and of disbelief and unengagement. And um, yeah, so that's that's the, the position of that's my own position. Nora Krug is the author of uh, Diaries of War. She's a graphic artist, writer, journalist. Uh, I want to thank uh, Liberties, the Quarterly, for bringing you this show. Uh, it's a wonderful new Quarterly Journal of Culture and Politics. Going to run a short ad for Liberties. And then we'll be back with Nora to talk a little bit more about the book. It's uh, the first year of the war. Uh, and I had some questions about the narrative of how her narrative or view of the war and her, her, her protagonists changed over the, the 52 weeks that uh, she wrote about the war. So we'll be back in about 30 seconds. Don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are speaking with uh, Nora Krug, who has a very important, very moving book out, uh, Diaries of War, which covers the first year of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Nora, the book goes right up to week 52 of the war. 
Um, obviously, you had to bring it to an end somehow. Hopefully, you will accelerate the end of the war itself. What is the narrative in terms of your two protagonists? What are the the, the threads, the narrative threads that you think define this graphic novel? I mean, I, w I wouldn't call it a graphic novel, a, a, a graphic description of the war. Yeah, I mean, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the two protagonists have very different perspectives in that they are experiencing the war from two sides of the border. So Kay is immediately physically uh, under threat. Uh, her family and friends are under threat. Um, whereas for D, it's much more of an internal struggle. And so uh, over the course of those uh, weeks, you know, the first year of the war, we follow those two narratives and how they, how the war affects them over the course of these months. Um, for the, the main narrative of, of Kay's story, the Ukrainian journalist, is that she, it, you know, she's initially obviously shocked what's happening to her country. Um, then she pretty quickly uh, thinks about ways of evacuating her children. Uh, there are the bureaucratic challenges around that, but she uh, brings them in the first couple of weeks, I think. She brings them to Copenhagen, where she has friends, uh, sets up basically a new life for them there, but then goes back and forth between Copenhagen, Kiev, and the front line to report, because she's a journalist, that's her job, and she's committed to that work. So she the children are with the grandmother in Copenhagen while she's traveling back and forth and also the added challenge is that her husband uh, cannot leave the country because any any man between 18 and 60 years of age is not allowed to leave so her narrative focuses a lot also on the fragmentation of her family and the effect that that has on her two young children um, and also on the observations that she has over the course of the months uh, about Ukrainian society and how the war changed society. Um, uh, and for D, um, he is equally shocked by the beginning of the invasion, um, you know, sticks around, thinks about what this all means to him, and then slowly thinks of the idea of, of emigrating, especially when the draft, the first, I don't know if you remember, when the first military yeah, draft... Yeah, I do remember. And many, many Russians left uh, for other countries that, that allowed them in. So um, his story very much focuses on his attempts of emigrating. Initially, he wants to emigrate to the Baltic states. Then they close the borders to Russians. So that's not an option. He can't get a visa. He's trying for France. Uh, he's also going through months of separation from his family. Um, so there are these parallel themes that, that pop up between the two stories, which is interesting too. You know, they both talk about how hard it is to be separated from their children or from the family. Um, but again, with very different perspectives, obviously, because his suffering is just not comparable to hers, uh, who is under immediate threat. Um, and so, yeah, finally he manages to... Um, to find ways of, of settling in, in France. Um, and there are, there are dramatic moments too where he's going back, um, taking his family by surprise uh, to St. Petersburg to see them because he misses them so much and he wasn't sure if he was going to get arrested uh, you know, at the airport for having uh, avoided the draft and um, whether he was going to get drafted into the, into the Russian army. And uh, so, you know, I remember during that week, he... Um, yeah, in your week 51, I was reading um, He Returns to See His Family. Uh, there was a piece, I can't remember which newspaper, suggesting that a lot of Russians who left 
after the first year now going back um have you kept in contact with d since uh in in the last I year have. yes uh, i just actually sent him the book and he just sent me a picture of the book he's just received it uh which is and he's still in france he's still in france yeah um and uh, and i've also been in touch with kay um in fact she's she's visited me here in new york and uh very surreally, she just saw the book at bookstores here in Brooklyn, um, you know, a book about her life, um, which must be just such a strange feeling. But So a, a couple of questions on, on, on what changed over the year. Did you get any sense from Dee about the exhaustion in Russia, the hostility, any sense of how everybody, Russian popular opinion, sees this war? Um, I think initially, uh, and I might be misquoting him, he said something like um, his estimate is that one third of the population is against Putin but is afraid to say anything. Another third is in favor of Putin and the last third simply doesn't care because, you know, they're, they're financially well off and why should they, why should they change anything? Um, I mean, I think the sense of passivity that I brought up earlier is, uh, is something that he has referred to as well, the sense of ignorance when he one time came back from uh, the Baltics to see his family, he mentioned how everybody was sitting at the cafes and, and you know, in, in, in Russia, and he just didn't get a sense. There was no sense that a war was going on. Um, I mean, you know, misinformation obviously is a big problem, but um, everybody has access to the internet, so um, people should be able to... But there are real lives being lost, real... Um real consequences of this war in terms of the Russian economy, real consequences in terms of whether or not people can travel? There are, but I think, um, I mean, I'm not an expert in this, but at one point Dee mentions that a friend of his um, was uh, uh, taking part in a demonstration. This was before the uh, current invasion, I believe. And um, she was jailed for two uh, weeks and got a, got a fine, um, you know, to pay. Um, and uh, I don't know if that ha has changed, but, um, you know, as somebody who grew up in Germany and with this um, uh, history of, of, of the Nazi regime, it's um, what we tend to forget sometimes is that people have a choice and that, that there are ways of resisting that um, you can engage with that don't have major repercussions necessarily. Do you think there are direct analogies between the Nazis and Putin's regime and what they're doing in Ukraine? Um, yes, I mean, I definitely think so. Um, I'm so sorry. I'm just going to uh, migrate, but um, I'm talking about migration, but I'll, uh, I'm going to continue to talk. Um, I do think that there are many parallels in terms of um, how certain, um, you know, the control of the media and... Um, Sorry, other strategies uh, that that um, totalitarian regimes apply in order to control their people. Um, I mean, it's very similar to what Timothy Snyder writes about in his book on tyranny, um, and and there are definitely parallels in the ways in which Putin, um, you know, tries to control information, tries to control people. Um, I mean, of course, you can't equate the Nazi regime with the Putin regime. That would be too simplistic and also too dangerous because then you wouldn't really um, clearly deeply investigate what, what's happening in, in Russia because you, you need to look at every tyrant individually. 
Um, but yes, I, I definitely see parallels. And what about Kay? When the war started, no one quite knew how the Ukrainians would perform militarily or otherwise. Do you get a sense of pride in what in, in, in how Ukraine is resisting both militarily and in cultural and political terms? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we've all experienced, even from afar, this great sense of, of um, uh, you know, cultural connection and, and pride in, in, in the resistance and in, in this fight against the invasion. But uh, what I've been also finding interesting is uh, what Kay has been writing about in terms of um, dividedness within the Ukrainian uh, um, community. And that this is something that we don't get so much, I think, in the media here. Uh, you know, Ukrainians who have stayed, being reproachful towards Ukrainians who left to live in another country and then returned, or Ukrainian men, for instance, who are worried about leaving their apartments because they're worried that they might get drafted um, uh, you know, as soon as on the street you know, because they can be approached by the military and basically presented with a piece of paper and, and drafted and that's it. Then they, they have to be soldiers. So um, there are, you know, people, obviously, as the war goes on, I think there is also a sense of, of tiredness and, and desperation um, that, is not, that is not covered so much uh, by the media necessarily, because we, we, we want to hear this story of unity and, and a pride in the resistance, but you know it's difficult to to maintain that over the course of such a long time. Nora, is one of the messages in the book that whether we want to or not, we can't escape history. You note that you've been drawn into this because of your German background and your sense of German history. In one of the later episodes, Kay visits Babi Yar, uh, where the Nazi-organized uh, massacres took place. Thirty-three thousand Jews died. Um, is history um, there, whether we like it or not? Um, yes, I mean, and I think we we need to con confront history. We need to, uh, I think, you know, we are made of history. I mean, everything that we're experiencing today has its roots in the past. And I think we need to recognize that our countries are the way they are uh, because of what was before. So I think it's very important to embrace that history is part of the present. And I think it's our responsibility to, to keep on facing it. I mean, that's why we have memorials like the one you just, um, you just mentioned and reminders and history books of the past. Um, you know, obviously the goal is to learn from it, but whether we will learn from it is, is, is the other question, you know, and um, sadly it hasn't looked so far in the past, you know, hundreds of years, uh, it hasn't looked like we have learned. And that's one of the main questions that I ask at the end of the book of the two protagonists as well. Do you think we'll ever learn from war? And I think it's probably the- What did uh, they say? Uh, well, Kay said that um, she is hopeful that future generations will, at least between Ukrainians and Russians, will figure out the relationship, what, whatever that means, and will be able to overcome the mutual hatred. Um, and Dee's final comment was that he doesn't believe that we can impact the government. You know, that's that's his belief. And again, that probably differs from my own personal belief. But um, his his answer is was basically that um, people don't seem to learn from war. People glorify war and don't understand that it's just stupidity. 
and there's nothing we can do about it. The uh, case diary also ends during the Syrian-Turkish uh, earthquake, 33,000 victims. But she notes that uh, the people trapped in the rubble, a lot like those coming out of present-day Ukraine, only this was a natural horror rather than a horror of war. Your, your book ends after the first year. What, what do you think Kay in particular would make of what's happening now in Gaza? Um, I've just asked her about it. Uh, it was interesting for her to see how much more the war there seems to affect people abroad, in, including in the US. Mm. I've been finding that interesting as well. Um, you know, these are both wars happening elsewhere, but there's so much more emotional engagement here with, um, with the war uh, in uh, Gaza and, and Israel. Um, I mean, it's, uh, I think, what was her take on it? I think it's it's difficult to say. I think she's trying to wrap her head around what's happening there. And obviously, a lot of the pictures she sees are eerily familiar. Um, but I think, yeah, it's it's she and I probably both agree that it's it's two very different situations. Um, but the suffering is is the same. You use the word interesting. It sounds rather euphemistic. What, why do you think it is? Why are people more concerned with what's happening in Gaza, Palestine, Israel, as opposed to Ukraine? I think uh, it's partly maybe about religion or a cultural affiliation that comes with religion. I mean, at least in the United States, I think there's a big dividedness at the moment, yet another dividedness um, when it comes to this new war. And depending on how you identify what your own family background is, uh, I mean, I know the war in Ukraine is about much more than just about Russia and Ukraine, but I think in, with Israel and Gaza, we're talking about religion, we're talking about cultural identification. Um, and I think that's uh, that's probably a topic that, that um, affects people here more strongly. Um, I mean, I don't have a, a clear answer to this, but that's just one of the reasons I can think about. You've been very generous with your time, Nora. Final question. What do you want people to learn from this book? It's not hard history, contemporary history. Um, and it's not just another graphic novel. What do you what do you want people to take away from this? Two visual accounts from Ukraine and Russia. How do you think this unusual book can contribute? Um, I, I mean, a multi multitude of things. One is that individual um, narratives are a, a big and important component of the truth and of history writing, and that they're often overlooked, and we need to look at them more closely. Um, another thing is that uh, we need to look at perspectives even when they're uncomfortable to us. We need to look at perspectives of people living in the countries that commit atrocities and that uh, you know that 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 are the aggressors because we need to understand what drives these countries and what drives the regimes that run these countries. Um, and I think we need to also um, try to confront. I hope that the book will allow us to confront ourselves with our own sense of agency. You know, are we doing enough to resist um, terrorism? Are we doing enough to resist tyrannical regimes? Um, and, and what's our role in here? What can we do? Because we do have a choice. Uh, and I think that's, to me, probably the most important message. And what about the visual element? Uh, people, the, 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 the 
I guess the conventional sense is that uh, younger people in particular are much more comfortable with images in our age of TikTok and YouTube and um, and uh, uh, the internet and social media than a hard textual book. Do you think that the, the visual element will bring truths that wouldn't be possible through a, a traditional narrative, a, a textual book? I mean, that's always the hope. Illustration is a very immediate medium. You know, it conveys emotion very directly. It's also when you look at the history of illustration, it, is, it was basically before the advent of photography, it was the medium that communi communicated emotional, political, religious ideas. So, um, of course, I hope that this book might engage a younger audience. But to me, we also, as adults, often over, uh, underestimate uh, the effect that illustrated books can have on us. I mean, we are highly visual people, um, and yet we are so used to reading books that only have text in it. But I feel like war is such a visual thing. You know, we experience war and the memory of war very visually. And I think books that talk about war and have images can reach us, you know, including adults, in a very, very different way. And I think... I'm very happy to see that more and more young artists work in this field of graphic nonfiction, because I do think it can it can address political uh, um, you know subjects in a, in a very effective way.